Well, friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians this morning. 2 Corinthians for this next installment in our series on the hope of heaven and how it affects our lives in the meantime, where we're jumping all over the Bible to see what the Lord has to tell us about our future and how it affects our present. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You'll find it on page 908 of those little Bibles that are on the pew in front of you if you want to use one of those this morning. Uh, I don't know how the Super Bowl went for you guys. If you were happy about the results or not, I was kind of at least loosely rooting for the San Francisco 49ers, you know, just for the change of pace since the Chiefs have won so much lately. But I realized a couple weeks, a couple days into this week that it was all, like all, whatever minimal amount of emotional investment and time I spent rooting for the 49ers was all for nothing because the Chiefs were clearly going to win And that was there for anyone with eyes to see simply from the fact that Taylor Swift's favorite number is 13. Did you guys know that? I read all about this this week in Us Weekly. Taylor Swift's favorite number is 13. Taylor Swift is dating star player Travis Kelsey for the Chiefs. Wherever Taylor Swift goes, the number 13 goes with her and good things happen. The Chiefs won exactly 13 games with Travis on the field this season. A couple games he was injured. This particular game, last Sunday night, marked the 13th game that Taylor had come to to watch since they started publicly dating. To get to the game in Las Vegas, Taylor Swift had to fly from Tokyo, where she performed the night before in a concert, to Las Vegas, a flight of exactly 13 hours. This Super Bowl was the 58th Super Bowl in the history of the NFL. Five plus eight equals 13. It was played on the 11th day of February, which is the second month. 11 plus two equals 13. And the Chiefs' opponent for this game? Do the math. The San Francisco 49ers. What do you get when you add four to nine? You get 13. It was all there for anyone with eyes to see. Clearly the Chiefs were going to win because these numbers mean something, right? Do you need to see any more evidence? I mean, look, obviously that's ridiculous, but is there a better example anywhere of just how much we humans crave meaning, patterns, connections, how, how we long to connect little things into big things, to take what we can see around us and make sense of it all. We crave meaning in a way no other type of species out there ever has. We can't help ourselves. And not just with silly little things like numbers and Super Bowls and pop stars, but I mean, especially we do this on on big things like, like work and relationships and the sheer fact that we exist on this planet in the first place. We are relentlessly asking, what does it all mean? I'm asking that question all the time. I know there's a, you know, there's a, a popular answer out there these days that that basically says it all means nothing. I mean, we just happen to be here. 
on a random rock spinning in this fast universe full of random rocks spinning. And we got here based on a lot of different little mutations that happened over a very long period of time. We come from nowhere. We're going nowhere. And it all doesn't really mean anything at all. And for a, for a little bit, an answer like that one can sound like freedom. Well, if it doesn't mean anything, if I'm not connected to something any bigger than my life, my life is mine to live however I choose to live it. So eat, drink, and be merry. I think that can work for a little while, especially if you're in your 20s and you got a good paying job and you got a thick network of friends and you got lots of options for what to do over the weekend and you got the freedom to travel wherever you might want to when you want to. There is a window of time in which you can make it through life and not worry about how, how your life is shaping up, where it's all headed. But what about when, when you just focusing on your life and what you want from it means you paying attention to details that look absolutely terrible? I mean, sooner or later, in large ways and small ways, Everybody on earth suffers and nobody gets out alive. As one pastor put it, no matter how young and healthy you might be now, no matter how well the dominoes are arranged in your favor to end up exactly where you want, you have a lot of death in your future. (laughs) Eventually, things are going to start breaking down. And if that's hard for you to imagine for yourself right now, you can take it from friends sitting all around this room right now. You are surrounded by people whose bodies are breaking down, by people whose relationships are falling apart, by people whose dreams are fading, by people whose jobs are miserable or, or coming and going at random. Everybody suffers in this world as it is right now. And you will too. And if you're going to carry on, you're going to need to know what it all means. You're going to need to know why it matters. You're going to need to know how what you're going through connects to where you're going. You're going to need a hope, in other words, that suffering cannot destroy. That's what you're going to need. And that's the hope that Paul puts in front of us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It is a beautiful text. It is short, but it is oh so sweet. And in this beautiful text, he tells you two things that you've got to remember if you want to carry on in this world as it is, but not lose heart. You need to know that heaven is where you're going and that suffering is how you will get there. You need to know that heaven is where you're going. That's point one. And that suffering is how you will get there. That's point two. We're going to spend a little bit of time on point one this morning and almost all of our time on point two. And before we get into it, I want to read the text and ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter four at the end of the chapter. I'll start in verse 16. So Paul writes, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. You can be seated. You need to know that heaven is where you're going. That's point one. Paul frames up these verses with two statements. The first statement he makes is about our frame of mind and heart now in the present. He says, the very beginning of verse 16, we do not lose heart. It's a statement about now, about how we're doing. The second statement at the end of the verses we read is about our perspective on the future. We look, he says, not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. Things that are seen are transient. We're not looking at those things. Things that are unseen are eternal. That's what we're looking at. That's verse 18. So when he talks about these unseen and eternal things, we, we know what he's got in mind because he's just been talking about the resurrection of Jesus. If you back up in the text beyond what we read and look at verse 14 of chapter 4, you'll see he has on his brain Jesus who was raised from the dead and God's plan to raise us also with Jesus and bring us into God's own presence. He's talking about heaven. And that's where he's going to go in chapter 5 in the verses right after what we read. He talks about what we're looking forward to, a building from God, a new world made not with hands, eternal in the heavens, a world we groan for, chapter 5, verse 2, while we live in these tents. We long to put on our heavenly dwelling. It's in this new world, verse 4 of chapter 5, that we will see what is mortal swallowed up by life. And what Paul is saying in these two big statements on our, in our text is that we do not lose heart now because we keep our eyes on where we're headed. We don't lose heart in the present no matter what because we know our future is eternally secure in a place where death and suffering cannot reach us. Paul writes to people, in other words, who are suffering in real time to remind them where they are going so they don't lose heart in the meantime. This is absolutely crucial. Friends, you cannot live without hope. And what Paul's saying here in these verses reminds me a lot of a book by psychologist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. I wonder if you guys have seen this book. It's super famous. It gets uh, assigned a lot in college classes. It sold millions and millions and millions of copies and for good reason. It's a really, really powerful story. It, it's got profound insight into human nature. It's basically the same insight Paul's talking about here in our text, though it lacks the hope that Paul claims at the heart of what he's saying. See, Viktor Frankl spent years in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. Back before the war, he was already a really distinguished psychologist and researcher. And, and, and so when he got swept up and, and thrown into this camp as a Jewish person living in the Nazi-controlled areas, uh, he, he took his, his analytical eye, you know, his training as a researcher, his interests as a psychologist, he took those with him into the camp. And he turned his experience, I mean, as terrible as it was, as excruciating as his years in that camp were, he turned it into a research experiment. 
to actually test some of the theories he already had going in his mind about, about what it means to be human and how humans make it in a world like ours with so much suffering. Basically, he asked the question, how do we respond when everything is taken away except our capacity for pain and suffering? That was the driving question behind his book. Why did some people break down under conditions like those camps? And how did other people find the strength to push through? He was asking, in other words, what did it all mean? What we went through? What what did it mean? And he studied his own mind and heart, and he studied the lives of those around him, and he wrote up his conclusions after the war in Man's Search for Meaning. So what did he find? Well, on one hand, he found, this this is a quote from him, that the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, in his future, was doomed. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash or go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. He simply gave up. He tells one story about a prisoner who was a friend of his and had a, who had a dream that he was going to be released on March the 30th, 1945. His friend got a fever on March 29th. March the 30th came and went. He did not experience any change. No one came for him. No one liberated him. And on March 31st, he was dead. On the surface, it looked like he had died of typhus. But Frankel knew better. Quote, the ultimate cause of my friend's death was that he was severely disappointed. In other words, hopelessness can be lethal. That's what Frankel found. On the other hand, Frankel found that with hope, you can get through just about anything. You just have to know what your suffering is for. You need a purpose that makes it worthwhile. And for some people in the camp, he said that that purpose was a child or a spouse that was waiting for them on the outside. For others, it was work they wanted to get back to that they left unfinished when they were captured. One way or another, as Frankel put it, because that person knows the why for his existence, he can bear almost any how. Do you follow that? Because that person knows why, they can bear any how. They need to be able to connect what they're going through to where they're going. That's what Paul is doing in this text. He doesn't lose heart because he has set his hope for heaven right in the center of his horizon. He knows the why for his existence and for everything that he experiences along the way. That's why he keeps his eyes on what is unseen. That's why he is fixed now and forever on what's eternal, not what's happening around him. These things that come and go. And if we want to carry on for whatever we're going to have to face between now and the end of our lives, we got to follow Paul's lead on this. We need to keep in front of us, not just where we're going, but but what God has already done to make sure we get there. We need to know that God sent his own son because he loved the world. So that if we believe in him, we wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. We need to know that, that he sent his son to the cross so that we can be forgiven 
We need to know that if he didn't spare his own son, he's he's not going to stop giving us what we need now, anything we need. We need to know that because he gave Jesus, nothing can separate us from his love. What can keep you from getting where the father sent the son to take you? What can separate you from the love of heaven or the future it holds for you? Absolutely nothing can do that. You need to know that. Your future is heaven. Heaven is where you're going. You may have a lot of death in your future, but you got even more joy in your future. You need to know that heaven is where you're going. That's point one. And point two is that you need to know Suffering is how you'll get there. Suffering is how you'll get there. I mean, on one hand, what Paul says here is, is, it can be hard to connect with because he's saying you don't lose heart because of what you can't see yet. I won't lose heart because I keep my eyes, I keep looking at what's unseen. And you're, you're right to be thinking, if you are, how do you do that, Paul? I mean, when what you can see is so painful, when what you can see is so vivid, so tangible, so every day. When what you can see, you, you can't unsee as soon as your eyes wake up from your sleep. When, when your world is defined right now by pain, how, does it, how, do you, how do you keep your eyes on something you can't see that's so abstract that, that, that you haven't been to, haven't experienced yet? How does this work? What a gift for us that between the statements Paul makes, between don't lose heart and look at what's unseen, Paul makes one crucial connection to put our suffering in perspective. He wants to teach you what to do, how to understand all the things that you can see that threaten to cause you to lose heart. What you need to know as you look to the world to come is how your present suffering connects to your heavenly future. That's the connection Paul makes in our text. How your present suffering connects to your heavenly future. And he shows us two ways. Number one, in your suffering, God is preparing you for heaven. God is preparing you for heaven. Paul makes this connection beginning in verse 16. He says, we don't lose heart. And then he, he explains himself a little more. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We don't lose heart because the outer self is passing away, but the inner self is being renewed. What's he talking about? How does this keep us from losing heart? Well, when, when, when Paul talks about the outer self versus the inner self, he's, he's not talking about a physical body like this one and the real you that's inside that one day will get set free from this body like, like, a, like a, a seed coming out of its husk. It's not like that. When he talks about inner self versus outer self, what he has in mind are actually two different ages and our lives in these two ages that are right now overlapping. It's not body versus soul. It's life in this present age under the influence of sin and death and all their terrible minions. And then life in the age to come, which has already started to break in. When Jesus walked out of his grave, this new life, this new world, this new future has already begun to break in. And right now our lives belong to both ages. There's an outer self that's still affected by, I mean, better to say afflicted by, all sorts of factors that we encounter every single day. 
It involves bodies that break down and die. How's your body doing these days? I mean, I remember, I, I, I still remember the first time I stepped out of a shower and noticed my hair was getting kind of thin. Stepped in front of that bathroom mirror and uh, there it was. And I thought to myself, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> I was 21 years old. A couple weeks back, maybe three weeks ago now, I uh, took my boys sledding. Uh, over at Vinnie Link's golf course and along the way my little seven-year-old was falling slipping sliding bouncing up like rubber off of that ice-covered pavement and all up and down those slopes that we were sledding on I fell a few times and in one particularly acute moment I thought that's going to be a problem I am not seven anymore I am quite literally wasting away How's your body doing? It isn't just our bodies, though, is it? I mean, when Paul talks about this, this outer self that's wasting away, surely he has in mind the fact that all the joys that come to us in this life under the sun just come for a time, and time carries them away, and it hurts us. The outer self is a, it's, it's just vulnerable. In so many ways, it is vulnerable to all sorts of afflictions. And underneath it all, The life of that outer man, it's just simply not renewable. It's not a renewable resource. It's got a fixed content to it. We drain it down, breath by breath, day by day. That's what Paul's talking about when he says the outer self is wasting away. But meanwhile, at exactly the same time that the outer self is wasting away, Paul says the inner self, the self that's bound for glory, the self that will one day live in a body as new and unkillable as Jesus' body. That self is being renewed. I'm convinced that what Paul means is not simply God is renewing us despite the fact that we're wasting away, you know, as if it's like a consolation prize. You know, I know it's tough to be wasting away, but you know, cheer up. At least over here, you're being renewed. It's not all bad. Yeah, you're wasting away, but the things are going better for the inner self. I I think what he means us to see is more than that. He means us to see that that God is renewing the inner man through the affliction of the outer man. It is as that the outer man is wasting away that the inner man is being renewed. I I think he has something similar in mind to what he says a little further up in chapter 4. A few verses earlier in chapter 4 verse 7, he's talking about his own weakness as a pastor and a minister. He's talking about how everything he does to serve God, he does as a weak little jar of clay. We have a treasure all right but it's in a jar of clay, frail, easily broken, not very long lasting. And we're thinking, well, I'd so much rather be something better than that. I mean, I want to be a jar of gold or some some vibranium or Bezcar or something. I mean, anything but clay. But, but, But why jars of clay, God? Why something so unimpressive, something so fragile? And then Paul answers, it's on purpose to show the surpassing power belongs to God. And not to us. God keeps us weak to give us the joy of trusting him and not ourselves. He keeps us weak on purpose as his strategy so that we know who we have in him. In other words, it's through this affliction, through this suffering, through this wasting away of the outer man that God is showing us who he is. Showing us how delicious he is in himself. Because friends, heaven, 
We've said this already through this series. Heaven is defined by, by the joy of God's presence. He's the center of it all. If we don't enjoy God here, we wouldn't enjoy God there. Heaven has nothing to offer us apart from the joy of who he is. And as the outer man gets stripped away, the inner man is getting a stronger and a clearer taste of heaven's joy day by day. The goodness, the irreplaceable goodness of knowing God for God's own sake. When I was a kid, I, uh, I started drinking coffee at a pretty young age. My folks would let me have it once a week on Saturday mornings. Early on, <clears throat> it was always Folgers and always full of cream and sugar. Uh, and no offense if that's how you take yours, but uh, I'm just going to say it. I, I know better now. I don't drink it like that anymore. I, uh, I've learned over the years to enjoy better and better coffee. And I've learned to taste the difference. I mean, my, my palate isn't refined enough to detect the notes of, you know, blueberry or citrus or chocolate or honey or whatever else they're peddling on those overpriced packages of beans. But I can taste the difference between Folgers and the fresh ground, fresh roasted beans that I use at home. And I can taste the difference between what I do at home and what I can get at my favorite coffee shop near, near my house, Crema Coffee House, you know, right on the other side of the river, uh, up on the bluff, looking down at the river. Crema is amazing. It's a phenomenal coffee. But, I, but, but, but Crema Coffee was an acquired taste for me. You know, it, it, at first I had, to, I had to strip away little by little the sugar and then the cream. And then I had to, I had to improve the beans a little bit by little bit. Over time, I, I, I had to grow to understand the difference between beans and how they're brewed. And if, if as, a, as a little kid, I had been taken to Crema Coffee Roasters and served up a beautiful, fresh, steaming cup of coffee, you know what I would have done with that coffee? I'd have spit it out all over the room. I would have hated it. My palate wasn't ready yet. It's glory would have been lost on me at best, veiled by all sorts of contamination, cream and sugar. But at worst, I would have just simply hated it. Our taste for heaven's joys is a little bit like that. God, God is the essence of what makes heaven heaven. He is what we're gonna love best about where we're going. But for now, our enjoyment of God is veiled in all sorts of ways. It's veiled by, by sin in our hearts. It's, it's veiled by, by all these competitors in the world around us that draw our hearts in, that turn our heads at every, at every opportunity. And we're always being tempted in this life. We are always being tempted to turn God in just to, uh, means to some other ends, you know, to, to look to him for, for the perks, to, as one pastor put it, marry him for his money, for what we think we get when he turns our way. God means to break us of that and to teach us who he is in himself. And God does this work through suffering. As our outer self wastes away and that cream and that sugar gets, gets taken out little by little, the inner self is being renewed day by day. The self that loves God for God, the self that's headed for heaven the self that's already tasting of heaven's life through the spirit because of the son, that self gets renewed. 
And not in spite of the fact that the outer self is wasting away, but precisely because the outer self is wasting away. Friends, that's always how God has worked in his people. This is how he does his work. I mean, one of the best examples of this in the Bible is the story of Job. And you may remember the story of Job who was righteous, who, who loved and served God so faithfully, but who had, had everything taken away from him. It all starts with the evil one coming to God and saying, you know, the only reason he's so righteous is that you've already given him everything anybody could want. Take away the cream and the sugar. Let's see if he will drink you straight. He won't worship you then. That was Satan's taunt. And God did take it all away from Job. Not to harm his servant, but to show the evil one and to show Job himself who Job has in God for God's own sake. God is the greatest gift of all. That's that's the message of Psalm 73. We started our whole service with it this morning. Psalm 73, it's written by a guy who's looking around at what the wicked seem to have. They've got it all. And he's envying them because his life is hard. I mean, he looks around and he sees all these wicked people who, who don't treat God as their God, who, who take advantage of other people, who do whatever they want to do, whatever they have the power to do, and they seem to have everything. They got plenty to eat. They got influence. They got money. They got loads of fun. It says they have no pangs until death. Their life is just one great treadmill of awesomeness until it's over at a nice old ripe age. Meanwhile, he says, I kept my heart clean. I kept my hands clean too. I'm stricken all day and I'm rebuked in the morning. In other words, when he looks at the terms that matter to the world, he's losing. The wicked are winning. But then at the middle of the psalm, the switch flips and he realizes their prosperity is actually a curse. Their ease, their lack of suffering, it's blinding them. What looks so stable and so rewarding now, it's, it could all be swept away in a moment, he says, like a dream that ends when you wake up. And meanwhile, what has he learned in his suffering that he couldn't have learned otherwise? It's the verses we read this morning. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterwards, you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart might fail. I might lose everything while they seem to gain. But God is the strength of my heart and God is my portion forever. Friends, so long, so long as God is just a coffee flavored splash of folders in our cup of cream and sugar, we are not ready for crema coffee roasters. We don't have the taste for it yet. But in our suffering. God is refining our palates for a deeper joy in him than we have known to long for. He is right now teaching us that he tastes delicious all by himself. He's teaching us how to crave the good stuff above all. And then, almost unbelievably, when he's ready in his time, he's gonna give us what we've learned to long for. And he's gonna give it to us forever be my portion forever psalm 73 that's what god is doing in your suffering he is preparing you for the joy of his presence he's preparing you for heaven the second thing you need to know is that in your suffering 
God is preparing heaven for you. God is preparing heaven for you. I know that way of putting it is a little bit provocative, but bear with me for a second. Take a look at verse 17 again. Paul had said, we do not lose heart. Now he says, why? For, let me explain this to you, why, why, why you're going to carry on even though the outer self is wasting away. What's the reason? Well, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the reason. And in this reason, friends, there is an endless stream of encouragement to face anything if we can understand what Paul means. I mean, if, if we're not careful when we read this verse in the midst of suffering, you can actually be discouraged by it rather than encouraged by it. I've seen it. I've, I've felt it. We can see Paul labeling our afflictions as light and momentary compared to the glory of heaven. And we can think he's writing with a kind of shrug of his shoulders. Like, what's the big deal then? It's light and momentary. Just like, get over it. Why are you hurting so badly? Why can't you just move on? What, you, don't, you don't want eternal glory? Just doesn't matter to you? Is that, is that why? And, and, you know, if you're not careful with this, you can add to your pain a shame of being hurt in the first place. And that is not what Paul means to say. What he's saying is not that your affliction is, is, is nothing. Not that it's not worth grieving over or suffering through. What he's saying is that your affliction is productive that it's worthwhile. He, he's trying to show you what your suffering means. The key is to look at the verb. He says affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory. Affliction prepares glory. That's what I'm talking about when I say your affliction, in your affliction, in your suffering, God is preparing heaven for you. What heaven will be, the glory of it, the weight of it is prepared by the suffering you're going through right now in the meantime heaven on the one hand heaven is what heaven is like it just stays it stays heaven it's the place where we're gonna drink straight from the fountain of full and forever joy that we've only barely tasted down here on earth it's a place where where we're gonna see God as he is without a veil where when we see him we'll be transformed into his likeness because we see him like he is it's the place where God's gonna be our light a place where there's no evil, no sin, and no sorrow to touch us. It's a place where nobody's ever sad or afraid because nothing's ever lost. And it's a place defined by God's presence right at the center of it. A God who doesn't change. And because God doesn't change, heaven doesn't change. It's just eternally, wonderfully, gloriously unchanging. Heaven is what heaven is. But hear me. What heaven is to us that'll be determined in part by the affliction we endure in the meantime. That's what Paul means to teach us. There is a contrast between what we're going through now and what we'll enjoy in heaven that will make the beauty of that new world pop out to us and give us a joy we couldn't have apart from the suffering we experience along the way. Think about it. Water is what water is. I mean, all things being equal, if it's got you know, good filtering, it's basically got the same taste and the same nourishment at all, all the time. But what water is to me, that's affected a lot by whether I've just come in from a run. You know, every now and then when I'm, when I'm pressed for time, I'll do hill repeats on Ninth Street between Fatherland and Boscobel. There's a, there's a hill there that haunts my dreams, but it's a nice, efficient workout, you know, when the time calls for it. 
I hope it helps me because it's absolutely miserable to do. I, I hate it, especially in the heat of summer. And I can go out for about a half an hour or so and then shuffle home and kind of stumble into my kitchen and grab a glass from the cabinet and fill it with ice and drink down three or four tall glasses of ice cold water before I stop for breath. And let me tell you, when that's, when that's where I'm at, drinking that water, there is nothing in all the world like that taste in that setting. Water is what water is. It's always wonderful. It's always more healthy than anything else we could drink. But what water is to me is shaped by suffering. When I suffer between Fatherland and Boscobel, it's like every step up that hill is preparing me for the joy I'll get when I take that first sip. Every step prepares the weight of glory in that glass of water. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when he says, our affliction prepares glory. Glory feeds on affliction. In chapter five, he talks about mortality being swallowed up by life. It's like the, the life that we'll enjoy in heaven is nourished by the death that we die here on earth. It is fed by, it gets stronger and bigger and, and, and more powerful because it feeds on our loss of life in the meantime. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, quoting from Isaiah 25, death is swallowed up by victory. The victory of Christ's resurrection, it eats away at death and feeds on its power. It turns that, that destroying power into something constructive and beautiful and wonderful. In other words, the, the glory of heaven is, is nourished by our knowledge from experience of what it replaces and what it redeems. Richard Baxter was convinced that in heaven, we're gonna keep our memory of earth and the lives that we've lived down here so that we get to compare the past with our eternal present in heaven and know how good we have it in God's own presence. Here's how he put it. He said, to stand at that height where we can see the wilderness and Canaan both at once. To stand in heaven and look back on earth and weigh them together in a balance. How that must transport the soul. From that height, he goes on, with the perspective of heaven, you'll see that your Lord intended sweeter ends than you would believe. Your Redeemer was saving you just as much when he crossed your desires as when he granted them. Just as much when he broke your heart as when he bound it up. Surely Baxter's on to something. Surely that's why Revelation 21 describes the beauty of the new Jerusalem as, as a world of no more. It defines that world by the ugliness of all that's replaced, of all that's banished forever. Its power feeds on the things we long to be freed of. It's a city of no more death and no more mourning and no more crying or pain. The joy of that, of that huge all caps, no more, feeds on the tears that God is gonna one day wipe away. And the one who's seated on the throne, Revelation 21, 6 says, it's to the thirsty 
that I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. God is making you thirsty in your affliction so that he can satisfy you forever with the living water he's prepared. All of which is to say, you're suffering right now. It is producing for you something far more valuable for you than anything it takes from you. And I don't mean to tell you that the cost of what you're suffering through right now is not high. I know better. I've seen it. I see it. But it can't compare to the eternal weight of glory that it is preparing for you. Paul's not trying to minimize what you're going through or sweep it under the rug. He's trying to take what you're going through and plug it into a story that tells you what it means, what it's all for. He's trying to take what you're going through now and use it to teach you about how God will bring you all the way home. And what he's saying to you here is that this trade, it works out for you. This is a great deal for you. It is a steal. So don't lose heart. What you're going through is preparing for you where you're going. Hang in there. Keep going. This is what it all means. And when you know the why, you can put up with any how. Friends, I won't, I won't pretend to know the depths of what you're facing today, much less what you'll be hurting from tomorrow. I don't have any reason to try to explain away any of that, but I want to assure you of this. Your suffering now, tomorrow, for as many days as the Lord gives you life, it is not a diversion. Your pain will not be wasted. And whatever else he may be doing, he may be doing many things that we'll never see. Whatever else he's doing, I can tell you this with the authority of God's word. He is preparing you for heaven and he is preparing heaven for you. You are headed for glory and suffering is how you will get there. And as John Newton put it, when you get to heaven, you will not complain of the way by which the Lord brought you. Will you pray with me now? Father, we pray for the grace to receive this good word that you've given to us. It is a hard word. And it's especially hard for those who especially need to hear it. And we pray that for those friends whose road for now seems unwalkable, you would remind them that you are with them holding their right hand. That you are right now teaching them what it is to have you for their God. And that you are even now preparing for them a weight of glory, an endless joy that will be more than enough to make it all worthwhile. Help them believe it, we pray. For your name's sake. Amen.